Let us pray. Father, thank you that Jesus is indeed our bread of life. And he is the resurrection and the life for those who believe in him. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts now be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here. And um, yesterday was a very exciting day here at All Saints Church with our monthly food giveaway. And we um, served or provided food to 103 households yesterday. So wonderful. And thank all of you. So many of you were out and um, it was a little hot and humid yesterday when we were out doing that. But it was wonderful. And thank you all that donated food and worked in the garden and were here yesterday and helped us clean up and all the things that go on behind the scenes all through the month to make those days such a wonderful success to bless our community. Continuing in our studies on study in Ephesians, and as I said last week, both um, last Sunday and today, looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, um, was something that I had preached on back, I believe it was last winter. And so if you hear some things that are familiar in this sermon today, that's what's going on. And if you don't hear anything familiar, um, that wouldn't shock me either, but <laughs> it's okay. It's all good. Um, so I very much have reworked the sermon to some extent to tie in with the theme um, that we're, we're working through the book of Ephesians focusing on, but just want to make mention of that as we move forward. So last Sunday, we looked at verses one through three of Ephesians chapter two. And today we'll look at verses four through 10. But last Sunday, we talked about the difficult biblical truth, one of those, just last week were hard things to hear, that we are dead in our trespasses and sin, as verse 1 tells us, and that there is nothing that any created human being can do through human means to remedy this. We talked about the reality of our sinful nature as human beings, and then we concluded with the first two words of verse 4 last Sunday. Those words are this, but God... But God. And these two simple words take what is an otherwise abysmal, tragic, and humanly unchangeable situation, and they infuse these dire circumstances with the possibility of hope, new life, and transformation. Look at verses 4 and 5 with me. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. But God. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. Because of his great love for us. He has made us alive through Christ. But, but, this all-important conjunction introduces God's action toward us as sinners and our plight described in verses 1 through 3. I've heard God's grace in its most basic sense described as getting what we don't deserve. Howard Honer, in his wonderful commentary in the book of Ephesians, says this, In this instance, the calamity of sin is not something undeserved, Yet God extends his mercy towards sinners because he loves them and knows that they are helplessly trapped in their own snare. 
Look what God in his merciful character has done for us through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verses four through five again. I'll read verse five this time in its entirety. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This wonderful salvation that we're talking about, these wonderful things that we read and the hard things we read in the book of Ephesians. This is all of God. It is all by his grace. Someone who is spiritually dead cannot bring himself or herself back to life. To paraphrase John Wesley, we cannot exercise any good intention toward God because we are indeed dead in our trespasses and sin. Yet as we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So if God's heart is for us to come to repentance, yet we are dead in our trespasses and sin, how does all of this happen? How are we translated from the course of this world and from following the prince of the power of the air to being made alive in Christ? Well, I believe scripturally that this work is this work is a by I believe the scripture this work by means of God offering a measure of grace to each one of us. God offers each one of us a measure of his grace. Titus 2:11 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. This dimension of God's grace that we talk about here is what St Augustine called preparing grace. John Wesley, speaking of the same thing, called it prevenient grace, pre, grace that comes before. As one writer said, it is the grace of the front porch, if you will. Grace that prepares us to hear, to receive and to respond in faith to the gospel. Another writer has said it this way, this grace convinces then, them, meaning men and women, of being sinners who need God for forgiveness. And that connects very much with what we talked about last Sunday, the idea that we can never come to grasp or comprehend our need for God's grace until we first grace, grasp our utter sinfulness and separation from God. This is all of God. It is all God's free gift. Yet we can resist God's grace. We cannot initiate or exercise any good intention toward God, but we can turn away and reject his preparing grace. And in doing so, we can miss his salvation, which he offers to each of us. We can full, miss the fullness of life and his grace and consequently his transformation in our lives. Last Sunday, we talked about change versus transformation a little bit as well. Change is merely outward. You know, I, I like to garden, no secret around here. And it's been pretty hot in the past week or so. And I've been pretty dirty several times when I came into the house. And my daughter is very quick to remind me, daddy, you're dirty. Daddy, you're wet. Daddy, you need to take a shower. Daddy, you need to go shave before you kiss me. 
keep telling her I'm going to grow a big, long beard. But I can change my clothes and I can clean up on the outside. But that's change. We might be able to change some outward habits and behaviors, but only God, only God can transform us from the inside out by his grace. And when God makes us alive in Christ, and as we continue to yield to his gracious working in our lives, he begins a work in us and oh so much more. Because not only does God give us life through Christ, he also begins reshaping us according to his purposes and according to his plan and according to his will. Look at verses 8 through 10 with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared forehand that we should walk in them. As the Spirit of God works God's goodwill and pleasure in us, we become more and more like Jesus, and less and less of who we used to be. And this is not outward or superficial change. Rather, it is a deep, real transformation of our being, something which is holy of God and holy supernatural that takes place in us. About 10 years ago, the Josephson Institute, a Los Angeles-based ethics institute, conducted a character survey of 30,000 high school students at 100 randomly selected schools. So this is a large survey, 30,000 from across the country. And these were the findings. 64% of students said they had cheated on a test in the past year. 30% had stolen from a store. 42% said that they would lie to save money. And 83% said that they had lied to their parents about something significant. Despite this... 93% of the students surveyed said that they were satisfied with their personal ethics and character, with 77% adding, I'm better than most people I know. It's not about you or me being better than most people we know or thinking that we're better than those around us. It's about God's transforming grace at work in our lives, which changes us from the inside out. It's not a works righteousness, but it is a God-breathed, spirit-breathed righteousness. There is this greater and greater turning away, repentance, if you will. That's what repentance is, turning in the opposite direction. Or as some Christians would say, a fuller conversion. Some would talk about sanctification. Some would talk about fuller conversion. But the ideas are the same. There's this fuller conversion away from the ways of the world, the flesh and the kingdom of darkness, and an ever greater transformation which conforms to the heart and the character of God as we are more and more fully and wholly converted to God and transformed in the image of Jesus Christ. One writer in Christianity Today said it this way. When grace introduces us to repentance, the two of us become best friends. When anything else introduces us to repentance, it feels like the warden has come to lock us up. But when grace gets involved, the truths of repentance reveal a fabulous world of life-freeing beauty. We are 
and by God's grace are evermore becoming his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This is the power of God's grace, brothers and sisters. Again, to quote verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So as we conclude this morning, there are two things that I think are important for us to grasp as we live into this reality of God's transforming grace at work in each of us who know him. And the first is this. Grace is free, but it is incredibly costly. There are a lot of skewed or erroneous teachings about grace in our culture at large today. And tragically, much of that thinking at times has crept into certain quarters of the church. One of those ideas that is erroneous is this, that grace is equated with anything goes. I'm forgiven, so whatever I do doesn't matter. You hear sayings like, it's under the blood, it doesn't matter. I just go on living my life however I want, I'm forgiven. That's in theology what we call antinomianism, without any law, without any understanding of the righteousness of God, and that is not scriptural. When we take that kind of approach, anything goes because I'm forgiven, grace becomes confused with license, and that is not scriptural. It is not a biblical understanding of God's grace. It's what we could call cheap grace. And cheap grace, brothers and sisters, is not God's grace. Yes, God meets us where we are, dead in our trespasses and sins. He breathes his life into us. But when he does that, that is not where he leaves us. That is not where he leaves any of us who truly experience new life in Christ. St. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. God's grace, costly grace, is transformative because it is from God. And again, it points us back to the idea of transformation that is wrought in us by God versus some level of superficial or outward change. The great German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer probably wrote some of the most poignant words in all of church history about this when he said this. Cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without repentance. It is baptism without the discipline of community. It is the Lord's Supper without confession of sin. It is absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without the living incarnate Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the hidden treasure in the field for the sake of which people go and sell everything with joy, sell everything with joy that they have. It is the costly pearl for whose price the merchant sells all that he has. It is Christ's sovereignty for the sake of which you tear out an eye if it causes you to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ which causes a disciple to leave his nets and follow him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which has to be asked for, the door at which one has to knock. It is costly because it calls to discipleship. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs people their lives. It is grace because it thereby makes them live. 
It is costly because it condemns them sin. It is grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, grace is costly because it was costly to God. Because it cost God the life of God's son. You were bought with a price. And because nothing can be cheap to us, which is costly to God. Above all, it is grace because the life of God's son was not too costly for God to give in order to make us live. God did indeed give him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. God's grace is indeed free to us, but it is incredibly costly. And then secondly and finally, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. This is the clear testimony of Holy Scripture. Think again of 2 Peter 3.9 and Titus 2.11, which I read just a little while ago. Think again of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. By grace, not of yourselves. This is the gift of God. I know that we say that we believe that nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace, or at least I hope that we do. But do we really and truly believe this in a real and practical way? Do we believe that gang members in our community are not beyond God's grace? Do we believe that the most racist people or the vilest people in our land or those who perpetuate heinous crimes are not beyond the reach of God's grace? Do we really believe that even an ISIS terrorist is not beyond the reach of God's grace? What about people right here in our community? Maybe not even close to any of the categories I just mentioned, but people whose lives are a mess. Do we really believe that God is willing and more than able to transform them? Or as we talked a little bit about last week, do we somehow still want them at least in part to get themselves fixed up and cleaned up a little bit? before they come to us to help things from getting a little messy here at church, before we minister to them. We may believe that nobody is beyond God's grace theologically and theoretically, but do we really believe it practically? Do we believe it in practice? And if we do really, truly, and practically believe this, how does this impact and inform our lives? How does this impact and inform my life and your life? Right where you are, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in the store, how does it impact and inform the life of this church? If we believe this, and this is the testimony of Scripture consistently, both Old and New Testaments, if we believe this, are we willing to, by God's transforming grace in us, take the risk and get to know people 
and earn the right to be heard and to lovingly and graciously speak God's truth and redemption in their lives, to walk with them, to invite them to join us, that God could set them free, that God could heal their homes, that God could break bondages that have been there for years and years in their lives. Who is God calling you to come alongside of? Who is God calling you to walk along with, to hear their story, to hear their hurts and their struggles and their brokenness and the things maybe that broken people have done to them? Are you willing to walk with them and then in time to invite them to come with you? Not send them away or send them to church to get fixed, but to bring them along with you as a fellow sojourner so that they too could come to know and experience God's life for themselves and let God work his beautiful work of conversion and transformation in their lives and in their homes. We had 103 people here yesterday for the food giveaway. And that's just a very small touch with those people, but it's a place to start. They can be prayed for at the end. We can get to know them a little bit. We're starting to see some regulars, and we've had some folks show up at church and at children's ministries events who first connected with us through the food giveaways. What things is God calling you and me to do to connect with people so that we can share that life? God has placed us here for such a time as this. It's not coincidence. It's not accident. We are here for a purpose. And if we belong to God, we are here for God's purposes. And God's purposes are that everyone could hear the good news, that they could see the evidence of lives transformed. They could know that as a reality for themselves. So would you pray with me as we conclude and ask God again, even as we did last Sunday, who he is speaking to you about, who he is asking you to come alongside of and ask him to give us, because I know it is scary sometimes, it's uncomfortable, but to ask him to give us his grace and his power and his courage to come alongside those folks, to hear their story and then invite them in. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your incredible, costly grace. Grace that cost Jesus, the eternal son of God, his very own life's blood. Father, thank you that you are indeed at work transforming us. And Lord, may we just fully yield to all that you want to do in us individually, in our lives, in our families, through our church. And we ask, God, that you would open our eyes to the world all around us, to those you have in your sovereignty placed in our paths people you've called us to know and to walk with at this time. And Lord, even now I ask that you would speak to us about individuals and families, friends, coworkers, neighbors, schoolmates, people we see in the store.
Lord, give us your grace and your power and the life of Jesus flowing through us to touch them with your life. And Lord, when that gets hard and when it gets messy, maybe things aren't quite as comfortable at church as we sometimes like them to be. Give us your grace to see your hand at work in all of that because it is for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.